Hey, good morning, everybody. Even though there are not like prizes under your chairs for being here on time, there should be, okay? And I want you to know that from the bottom of my heart, I think you should get a reward, but there aren't any. So the reward is we're going to praise God this morning, and uh, we're going to give him all we got, all right? Are you guys ready to worship? Okay, here we go. Let's sing together. It's Honey in the Rock.
sweet it is to trust in you, Jesus. Oh, how sweet, how sweet it is to trust in you, Jesus. Oh, yes, we trust you, Lord. Matthew 7, 24. This is Jesus speaking. Everyone who hears these things, I say, and obeys them, is like a wise man. A wise man built his house on rock. It rained hard and the waters rose. The winds blew and hit that house. But the house did not fall because the house was built on rock. But the person who hears the things I teach and does not obey them is like a foolish man. The foolish man built his house on sand. It rained hard, the water rose, the winds blew and hit that house. And the house fell with a big crash. And when he says everyone who hears these things and that I say and obeys them at the beginning of that verse is, this is Matthew 7. So unfortunately, this is coming out of the Sermon on the Mount. I say unfortunately because there's a lot of hard stuff to do in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I think I am like the wise man and the foolish man back and forth like a thousand times a day. The times that I obey and the times that I don't obey. And it's not about hearing the words and agreeing with them. That would be great. That would be great. Intellectually, Jesus, you're awesome. I should love my enemies. Yes. But that's not actually what he says. He says that you're going to be on a firm foundation if you hear and obey. So it's humbling, but it's it's a goal to shoot for. And thank God that there's grace for those times that we wind up the foolish man. But let's sing of our firm foundation this morning and uh, put our hope in the right place.
character traits of who you are, that you are slow to anger, that you're rich in mercy, that you are the same God yesterday, today, forever, the God who went with Israel and parted Red Seas and had him walking on dry ground, that's, that's today, that's our God today, same God. Forgive us for our fickleness. Forgive us for our wishy-washiness. I thank you that when we call upon you for forgiveness, we know that you will forgive us, that you're graceful and you're merciful. 
We love you and we praise you. And we want you to get the glory that you deserve. So we're going to, church, we're going to have our offering um, time per usual here. Um, If you're new to this church today, I don't know, I haven't looked out here to see who's here, but um, we don't expect tithes and offerings unless this is your home church. In which case, I think we probably should expect tithes and offerings. Um, Sorry if that's offensive, but I think that we should give back to God. And so... um, Everything that we have is a gift. And so we just want to give back to him and honor him. And we also want to act in faith that he can do more when we give back to him. That our little control grabbing and like, I got to have 100%. Like we're not going to get as far with that as we are with the 90 or the, or the 80 or the 70 or whatever it is, that percentile that you're going to keep. So there's multiple ways to give. We've got the buckets up here up front. You're welcome to bring your tie down now or during that third song. Um, you can also give online. And then we've got the green box at the back of the room you can drop your offering into. Um, but we want to be a church that's marked and known for giving, I think. Don't you agree? All throughout the Bible, God calls his people to be generous to give to those who don't have enough, to share with one another, to act in mercy and compassion and just mimic him. And so that's what we want to be known for. And we're going to sing Highlands as our last song. And um, Greg's not here today, but I, I, I know him pretty well, so I think he's going to be okay with this. I don't know if he's watching from Mexico, but him and Heather are in Mexico. But I always think of Greg when, I, when we sing this song. I don't know if you know Greg, but um, this past week, his his previous wife, Tina, was her third year that um, we are without her when she died. And, uh, and Greg's in his 40s, and Tina was, I don't know, probably, I guess, early 40s or late 30s when that happened. And, uh, and so I, I think about Greg, he's got on his, tattooed on his forearm, um, he's got the phrase, no less God in the shadows which comes from this song. And uh, it's, a, it's a bold move to imprint your body with a reminder when you've been through that kind of trauma that God is not less three years ago than he is right now when Greg's in Mexico with his new wife, Heather. He's not different in the shadows. He's not different on the summit than he is in the valley. And so I want you to think about that kind of grit I would call it to our faith that we could sing songs like this that God is not different when we're hurting than he is when we're celebrating so let's just let's just sing that again in faith this morning um, and praise him for who he is If the mountains 
Come the pastures we call grace, a mighty river flowing upwards from a deep but empty grave. So I will praise you on the mountains, and I will praise you in the mountains in my way. You're the summit where my feet are. So I will praise you in the valleys all the same. No less God within the shadows. No less faithful when the night leads me astray. You're the heaven where my heart is. In the islands and the heartache all the same. That second song, um, I always blow my vocal cords out on it because uh, I, I really know what it means that if you have that firm foundation that you can't be washed away by any trial that comes and I, that's been tested in my life so when, when in the book of James when the brother of Jesus writes he says uh, brothers and sisters count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We just sang a song about that in the chaos, I can still be happy in the chaos, even look forward to chaos. Why? Why should I have joy in trials? The brother of Jesus asked. And he had trials. Knowing that the trying of your faith, the testing of your faith, works perseverance if you've been through a trial like that and I don't recommend it but if you've ever been through it you know that there's nothing that can come along that you can't get through it nothing can come that you can't get through it and I look I look at those trials differently now they don't they don't worry me they don't it's not a sweat because you know that you're going to be okay and that is being a counselor for 20 something years that's what people need more than anything else just knowing that you're going to be okay so when James who eventually is killed and he knows all that the the struggles that the Christian church is going through because he is the he's the um the Episcopal, uh, what I can't remember what he's called. He's the boss. He, he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, in the heart of all that's going on. But he says, "I count it all joy when I fall into various trials because I know what I can stand." That's my hope for you. Not that you have trials, but you know. I, I hope that a small trial is enough for you to know know the strength that comes from that, that you can get through anything, persevere. Amen. Y'all be seated.
I want to remind you, if you're if you haven't done it, uh, do the QR code on the flow page stuff. That um, there's all the best news. Anything you need to know, you can find in there. Um, but I want to remind you that Easter is coming up in just a few weeks, and that's going to be uh, a big time for our church. We're going to have. Uh, Easter egg hunt that day, and I'm sorry if that offends anybody, but I think Easter egg hunts are awesome, and uh, always enjoy the kids getting to do that, so we we will be doing that on Easter Sunday. Um, It will be family-oriented, and so it's going to be awesome. I want you to take just, oh, and the t-shirt order, it's going to go in this week, so if anybody wants one of the t-shirts that's on the bulletin board by this the stairs that go up, um, check out that t-shirt, put your, put your stuff, order stuff on there, and we'll take care of that this week, all right? Y'all take five, and we'll be back to hear a message from Pastor Jacob. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to continue talking about the gospel and uh, I feel it's never been more important to get this right in our time, our age. And in the midst of so many things being uh, so much propaganda coming at us, uh, so much distortion of reality being communicated to us, uh, we want the truth. That's what we really want. We want the truth. Um, and to be able to know the truth, and the truth make us free, uh, those of us who have called upon the name of the Lord and claim to follow Jesus, we believe that, that we find the truth in Jesus Christ. And I feel compelled to remind ourselves, be reminded, and remind us as a church what foundation we're built on and the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And important for me to, to communicate that that gospel is built on a story, not a theology. Our theology comes from the story. And we, we need to get the gospel right. If we get the gospel right, things flow from that that, that are of the truth. And uh, I'm just, I've been so excited about this. And I've already had to trim a significant amount that's on the cutting room floor of sermon prep but here's, here's the agreement. I was having this conversation with my wife yesterday. She's like, Jacob, do you, do you plan on pastoring a while? I'm like, that's a trick question, honey. Um, yes. So you'll be around for a while, correct? Yes. Then you can talk about this for a lot longer than what you think. So just so you know, we might be talking about this for a very long time. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, we're just, we're, we're going to be people of the word of God, um, and I'm grateful that uh, we have multiple campuses joining with us, so Durant, would you greet our Sherman campus today, as well as our Chandler and Hugo, Broken Bow, man, uh, it's, I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that is in multiple communities and seeing those communities transformed by Jesus. Again, that, that's our mission, see people transformed by Jesus. Uh, and I believe that if we get that right, if we, can, if we can get Jesus right, see him clearly and understand him, 
then our transformation is what leads to the transformation of whole cities and regions uh, and not the other way around. And I don't believe that if we just cram doctrine down people's throat, that that alone leads to transformation. It's important and it's a part of it. It's just not the driver of it. And I want to show you from the apostles who were tasked with the commission to go preach the gospel and make disciples, how they communicated that. And I want to start just reading the last line of Peter's sermon from the day of Pentecost. This is his conclusion, the last line. He says this, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord and Christ. That's what I want to spend the next couple weeks trying to get oriented around those ideas that are being presented to us about Jesus' identity and vocation. Who he is and what he does. That the conclusion to the gospel for, that Peter communicated on the day of Pentecost was not some clever emotional appeal to convince people of something. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't just delivering a theology and uh, kind of in that, oh, I don't know, I think of, I, I, yeah, I just think of just this sometimes this arrogant uh, proposal that Christians will make about their intellectual superiority, about truth, uh, as if like trying to slam dunk philosophy is the goal here. What the Apostle Peter is communicating as the gospel is an announcement, an announcement about a reality, a reality specific to Jesus, that he is Lord and Christ. What is a news, what, is, what qualifies as news, and this is what I began last week talking about news, this is where we, we, have, we have to get this oriented correctly, this framed correctly that what news is, is an announcement about an event. Something has happened. And good news, or gospel, is an announcement about something that has happened. And that event has a context or a backstory. It, it has a story that that one event makes sense within. Not just some isolated idea, but an event and a context. And that event and the context then gives us something about a new future, a new reality of a new future, and that new future transforms the present. And I'll take my time to, to kind of draw out all of what that means, uh, because it's a lot to deliver in one. Um, last week we talked about what the specific announcement is that Jesus made, and it's a direct confrontation to the Roman gospel, Greek word euangelion, the Roman good news. Uh, and that confrontation and that contrast uh, is not just a philosophy or a theology or an idea. It's an announcement. And sticking with that context of what it was in that first century culture is the good news or the gospel is a royal announcement and it, and it is about a king and a kingdom. The overall story is about a kingdom, and the announcement of the event has to do with the king. 
That's what all Gospels were in the first century. And that's the contrast, that is the direct confrontation that the Gospel we have received of Christ Jesus is countering. That it is an announcement, but it's an announcement about a king and a kingdom. And we looked at the, the, the Gospel announcement Jesus made, very simply, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the, that's the good news. And so, what I want you to see is first pulling what, what chances are we've heard as the gospel is some, some last 50 to 100 years crafting of things like four spiritual laws or the Romans road or all of these are presented to us as theology, idea. And it's not necessarily that that is untrue. It's just not what the apostles delivered to us. It's what the theology that came from the gospel was working out, specifically in the mind of the Apostle Paul. But when you look at even his sermons from the book of Acts, these all follow the same pattern. And in the notes, I I listed in the footnotes, if you get around to it this week, it's okay if you don't, I listed the references for all of the seven or eight sermons in the book of Acts. And you can look at those sermons and see they all follow the same pattern. It's an announcement about Jesus. And not not necessarily the theology about him. It's an announcement, a truth, a reality of him. But here's the overall context. It's the story of Jesus. The gospel is the story of Jesus. If you look, again at the four books in our New Testament that we call the Gospels, and often we'll use it as a plural, Gospels, when in reality, it's one Gospel. The Gospel. The Gospel, and then you have according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So what is the Gospel? It's not just a theology, they're not delivering a theological treatise about his death and atonement. What do they do? They tell the story of Jesus. Two of them begin with his birth. So part of the gospel is his birth. It's the story of Jesus. Why do they go to so much painstaking detail to talk about his life? Right? There's so much more than just some theology about a single moment. It's a whole life. that, That should tell us something about... The gospel, the gospel being a story, not primarily a philosophy, theology, or just an idea. It's not primarily doctrine. It's a story. They assumed, the gospel assumed, the gospel, the apostles assumed that telling the story of Jesus was announcing the gospel. And the story of Jesus Christ is a complete story, not just a Good Friday story. That means that the whole story of Jesus is good news and is therefore important. And we do the gospel of Jesus no favors by taking, by talking about only one part of his life, even if it is an important and significant part. The apostles felt the need to include far more than just the death of Jesus when preaching the gospel. They included elements of his whole life. That means that Jesus isn't just the centerpiece of the gospel, he is the gospel. He didn't just announce the good news. His life, his enti- the entirety of his life is the good news. Look at the larger context. Look at about halfway through 
the Apostle Peter's sermon, Acts chapter 2, jump up to verse 22. Acts 2.22. This is about, about halfway through this sermon. Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yes, I just love, this is awesome. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Okay, so look at when they're communicating the gospel. The Apostle Peter here communicates his life and summarizes his life about signs, wonders, and good works, miracles, that God did through him. And yes, he was crucified. But the emphasis is always not on the crucifixion, but on the resurrection. Because it was the resurrection that then vindicated him and his whole life. If it's not for the resurrection, listen, Jesus was one among Tens of thousands of first century Jews crucified. Thousands upon thousands of Jewish men were crucified in that time period. What made Jesus' different? He was raised from the dead. And only in the context of his resurrection that then we look back at his death and his life and can see things there that in the moment they couldn't see. But by the Spirit... After that, they were able to look back. And he presented the entire thing as the gospel. The whole story is the gospel. Not just something about his death, but about the whole story, the story of his life. Look at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 10. You can flip over a few pages. This is Peter's sermon, his first sermon to the Gentiles. So beyond just the people of, of Israel... The Apostle Peter goes to the Gentiles, to Cornelius' household, and his whole house is listening to him preach. Look at, look at this, verse 36. This is just a small portion of this sermon. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching euangelion of peace, good news of peace, through Jesus Christ. We're going to look at Christ next week. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus wasn't born to Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is a vocation, very specific. And we're going to look at that next week. But look at what he says here. It's almost, it's in parentheses. The good news, the gospel of Jesus, through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. So something that's important about the good news is Jesus' role as Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed, that has to do with Christ, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. His life actually meant something enough for Peter to communicate something about it. He went about doing good. Jesus living, going about doing good and healing all who were oppressed was part of good news. For God was with him, and we are his witnesses of all that he did, 
both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to all, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So do you see that in communicating the gospel, the Apostle Peter communicates Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. He doesn't present theology about his death. He communicates good news about Jesus' whole life, and then his death, and then his resurrection. The resurrection was always the emphasis. That's why we celebrate and gather on the first day of the week on Sunday Not because in and of that day there was something special, but because it was the first day of the week that Jesus was raised from the dead. And since Easter morning, that first Sunday, the church, the body of Christ has gathered every single Sunday for the last 2,000-ish years on Sunday. Why? Because it was the resurrection that dramatically changed everything. And that's the gospel. And the gospel isn't just that he was raised from the dead. It's that his life has connection to why his resurrection matters. There's so many things I want to say. That I just have to decide if I want to be patient or not to communicate them. When we just talk about a theology or a certain atonement theory around his death, what it tends to do is foster what Dallas Willard called vampire Christians. Just give me a little blood for all I need until I go to heaven when I can't get away from you. So why include the story of Jesus' life in the gospel? They seem to be important elements of the gospel in these two sermons and, and in nearly every other sermon, his life. Why do these matter? And I want you to see, I want you to see the key is in Jesus' summary of the gospel and then Peter's conclusion. And so I want to look at these two verses again really quick. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's that's the gospel Jesus preached. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, I I went through each line of that last week and and gave it in detail. But to, to, to hold that in your mind, remember, what he's announcing is that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's available. It's within reach. Then... Peter's conclusion in Acts chapter 2 verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, so the gospel Jesus preached, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. The conclusion to the gospel Peter preached that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Remember What is a gospel? A gospel is a good news, a royal announcement of a king and a kingdom. And so why Jesus' life matters is because his life was all about announcing and enacting the kingdom of God. And what the apostle Peter lays on top of that is that he is that king of that kingdom. That Jesus is king. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the gospel. That there is a kingdom 
and there is a king. And Jesus is that king, and he didn't just announce and enact the kingdom. Now, that kingdom is available to you and I. And so the gospel Jesus preached, as well as the apostles, is the availability to everyone of living right now in the kingdom of God. And we live in that kingdom through trusting and following Jesus, him, as king. That might sound like a little bit of a letdown. It doesn't sound incredibly intellectually stimulating. But it's the good news. And it's the good news that reshaped all of history. Something that simple. And I know I, I'm at the top of the list of people who have a propensity to overcomplicate everything. I get it. But this is what this is all about. This is the simplicity of it. There is a kingdom and there is a king. And it's good news to all who will receive it. Okay, so... We need to understand some things about backstory here. Jesus' primary message was the kingdom of God. Okay? Jesus, I've just been meditating on this for weeks, just rereading through the Gospels. Jesus was captivated by a vision of the reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus was able to tune in to a reality. And he was announcing that reality. He was trying to communicate that reality. He was trying to, to, to um, he embodied that reality in such a way for us to see it as visible. And to him, it was like common sense. It was just there. It was reality. But to everybody else, they couldn't get it. They couldn't understand. I just think of in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus is at a synagogue and there's a man with a withered hand. And he, he, brings, he brings the man to the center. And he says, yo, is it, is it okay to do good on the Sabbath or evil? And it says they kept silent. And then it says he looked at them in anger. But what was he angry about? The hardness of their heart. And then he healed the guy. And it made them mad, even more mad. And they, they said they plotted to try to destroy him. So like Jesus had this, has this, this vision of reality that he can see clearly. And that reality is the kingdom of God. He could see the reality of the kingdom of God. And he knew that that, that reality, when it invades this reality, it transforms it. And so things like this man's withered hand could be transformed by a different reality, the reality of the kingdom of God. Because the reality of the kingdom of God is that he's healed. And so Jesus enacted that. And then you have the the religious authorities that were supposed to be communicating the reality of the kingdom of God that was actually getting in the way. In Luke chapter 13, something very similar. Jesus heals a woman who for eight years had been bent over in illness and they get upset this the synagogue leaders like oh there are six other days to heal and Jesus gets ticked off at him 
He's like, is it not right that this daughter of Abraham, who's been oppressed by the devil for 18 years, be healed on this kind of a day? When Sabbath was supposed to be a day where the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of man collided. A day of of rest, a day of consummation. Where that reality and this reality merge. He, he, I, and I just, I can't get away from how he could see everything correctly. And, it, and it's the reality of the kingdom of God. So where does that come from? Just real, tracing real quick, very brief, storyline of the Bible. Okay, I've done a whole really long, fully detailed, big whiteboard series on the whole story that leads to Jesus. So there's much to say here. But when it comes to the kingdom, we, we, we have a hard time seeing and understanding that. I mean, we, we live in America. Like, we got rid of kingdoms a long time ago, right? <laughs> so so it's, it's difficult to understand this kind of language in, in, the, in the scriptures because we just don't have a cultural and social context for it. Uh, but but you got to go back to the beginning of the Bible, like everything. Everything begins in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Remember, God made humans in his image. And, and the image of God, in Genesis 1.26, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion, or rule, or reign. And so the whole idea of creation is that God is king. God is in charge. And he delegates authority to humans. It, being in his image is that we represent him, and that we rule on his behalf. And that it's a connection, a partnership, a relationship. So the kingdom of God is everything that is created. And the kingdom of man is what he's delegated. And those are supposed to be one and the same. Because we're to rule and reign connected to him and on his behalf. To where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man were supposed to be one. But humans, they went on a coup. They rebelled against that authority and the, the consequences of that is God released them, exiled them from the garden, and released them to go be kings and queens of their own domain. To rule, to, you, that's your decision, that's the consequences of your decision, is that you rule on your own. And how did humans do? Terrible. I mean, just it, absolute destruction and corruption. Okay? And so, from, from Babel, though, from Babylon... And the scattering, which is like the ultimate example of human arrogance, to be like God in that kind of way, God calls a man and, and makes a covenant with him that he will be his royal representative and through him and his family, he will bless all the world. And the family grows and uh, they end up in slavery. God delivers them out of slavery in Egypt. And the first time we see this idea of God being in charge is in Exodus chapter 15, the last line of the song that Israel sang coming out of the Red Sea was that Yahweh is king forever and ever. Yahweh reigns. God's in charge. God is, this is his kingdom and we are his kingdom. God makes a covenant with them in Exodus 19 and says you'll be a kingdom of priests. That, that they get into the promised land. I'm fast forwarding through a significant amount of history. They get into the promised land, they, they make themselves a king, and then their best king, David, God makes a covenant with him, is that he, as king of Israel, will be a representative of God's kingdom. 
and that there will be a day where a son of David will come, a king from his line, where there'll be like a father-son relationship and this son of David will be, a, will be, will be called the son of God. That, that statement is not a statement about divinity. It's actually a statement about royal lineage. And that in him, that his throne will be established forever as a representation of God's throne. And then you, you find about 500 years of all of David's sons failing miserably to where Israel ends up, ends up in exile. And Israel in exile, how are they to be a representative of God when they're under foreign oppression again? And they even come back from exile and back into the land, but they're consistently under foreign oppression. And so you have the prophets that are announcing there will be a Messiah, there will be a king coming that will establish the kingdom of God. And they, they spend centuries waiting and hoping for this king to show up. And then you have Jesus, a king, but a king unlike any they have ever imagined. That he doesn't go about, you know, killing people. That's what they thought they wanted. <laughs> they thought they wanted a, a king that would just murder you know, all their foreign oppressors. Instead, you got a, a guy who says, love your enemies. Where his kingdom is where the last will be first and the first will be last. Where the powerful will serve the weak. Where the rich will give to the poor. Where the sick and the broken will be touched and healed. Where the leper will be cleansed. And it was offensive. In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist, who was, as Jesus says, the foremost prophet of the entire Old Covenant. And in Matthew 11, he's in prison, about to die, and he sends one of his disciples to Jesus. And he asks the question, are you the one? Or do we wait for another? If I'm about to give my life, I need to know if you're the one. Because if you are the one, you're supposed to defeat all of our oppressors. I would rather not die. And so I need to know if you're going to actually defeat these guys that are threatening to kill me. Are you, the one, are, you the, are you the king who's supposed to bring God back to Israel and establish the kingdom of God? And what does Jesus do? He doesn't answer them. He starts healing people and setting people free and preaching good news. Then he goes back to them and says, you go tell John what you've seen. The good news is preached to the poor, sick are healed, lame will walk. And blessed is the one who's not offended at this. Blessed is the one who's not offended at me. They didn't know if they liked that kind of king. But see, this is where Jesus, again, he's tuned in to a totally different reality. That the biggest problem Israel had was not Rome. Was not Herod. But a much more sinister evil. An evil that had infected everything. Not just politics but every one. And Jesus could see that reality and he's trying to make this make sense to us, 
but we just don't get it. He's the kind of king that in John chapter 13, who washes the feet of his disciples. That's offensive in that time. That's not, that's not allowed. And then Jesus says, John 13, it's right around verse 12 and 13. He says, do you understand what I've done? The answer is no. No, they don't. But he says, do you understand what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord. King. You call me teacher, master, the one, the one to whom you learn life from. And Lord, the one to whom you submit to. And I, and he goes, and, and you're right. I am that. He had no problem claiming to be teacher and Lord. He says, but I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet. So now you do this for each other. That's why they missed it. What king does that? But it's because he's captivated by a totally different reality. And he considers that reality the truth. That power and position that we see in social structures, it's nothing but a shadow. At best, it's just a shadow. At worst, it's in opposition to the kingdom of God. But at its best, it's just a shadow. There's a reality that status and power come from serving and sacrifice. And that's why many people don't receive that as good news. It's good news if you have no power and status because you're in the last. And he says in his kingdom, you can be first. But if you're at the top, sorry bud, your entire existence is to be leveraged for those who do not have power. And status. So to claim Jesus as Lord wasn't just a confrontation to the, 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 the social acceptance of Caesar is Lord. That's, that's the, that statement is Caesar's Lord. Who's in charge of the world? Caesar. So when they make the announcement that Jesus is Lord, it's directly confronting that. That Caesar is Lord. It's confronting that there is actually someone in charge of Caesar. But the kingdom he brings, you may or may not want to be a part of it. Because it's not going to fit what you think. And you don't get to determine what that kingdom is like. We simply live in that reality. And we choose to submit to that king. The gospel's offensive. That's why it's scandalous. That's offensive. Unless you're at the bottom, then you're like two thumbs way up for that. But what if it's true? What if there is a reality? What if there's a reality where the power, the powerful serving the weak is how things really should be? And the rich giving to the poor is how things really should be. That, that, is, that is greatness. 
What if that, what if that reality is true, that greatness really is in serving? Where the lonely get placed in families, the tax collectors invited to an open table, the sick are healed, the leper is loved, the demonized are set free, those entrenched in sin and addiction are made whole, and where agape kind of love is the ultimate value and virtue. Because that, that's the kingdom Jesus preached. And it's the kingdom that the apostles continued to spread. Look one more time. But I want to read from Acts 22. Acts 2.22 all the way down to the end and see how he puts this whole thing together. Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. See, why does Jesus' life matter? Why does it matter that he say that that he was attested to you by, by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him? Why that? Is it just to make a statement to validate his identity? It can, I guess. But it's because that life The life of Jesus lived in the reality of the kingdom of God. And when when we come into his life, that story becomes our story. That we are transformed by his mighty works and wonders and signs so that we could live in that reality and extend his mighty works and wonders and signs that God will do through you. Okay. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, concerning him, and this is where he quotes from the Psalms, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. This is Psalm 16 is what Peter's quoting from. Or let your holy ones see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Supposedly where Peter's preaching, you could visibly see the tomb of David. And so when he says, guys, I'm, I can say with confidence, David died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Literally, he could have pointed to it. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. So this is like the third time he's mentioning the resurrection. That's the validation, is the resurrection. And of that, we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and then he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Then verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The life, death, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus is what the apostles preached as the good news. His life, Jesus' life, was marked by announcing and acting that kingdom, the kingdom of God, and his death and resurrection vindicated him as God's anointed king. He ascended to the heavenly throne at the right hand of God where he is, as, he, as Peter says in Acts chapter 10, Lord of all, Lord of all. So this is the good news, the announcement of a definitive truth. Jesus is raised from the dead. That's the announcement of an event that has happened. He's raised from the dead. But in that resurrection, he also ascended to the highest seat of authority in the universe. And he's in charge. He's Lord. And we know that. And so that, that announcement of him being in charge of all, then goes back and looks at his life and says, well, then how did he live his life in that kingdom? Because now he didn't just announce it, he enacted it. He's made it possible for all to live in that kingdom, but he is Lord. He is in charge. That word Lord, kurios, kurios in Greek, it means master. It means he to whom a person or thing belongs. Master, belongs. Like for him to be Lord, it means you belong to him. That isn't like a touchy-feely belonging. That's like... You are his property. Now, thankfully, that kind of a king washes the feet of those who follow and serves them and loves them. But he is master. And that word means the one who has the power to decide. So the good news, there is a reality available. A reality available. It's at hand. It's readily available to everyone the reality that we believe to be the true reality. That it's not always visible in the natural. That reality of God's, the range of God's effective will. Where what God wants is manifested. What God wills comes to pass. What he desires is fulfilled. What he decides is enacted. That's the kingdom that's readily available. And in that kingdom, sickness and disease have to be healed. They're not allowed in that kingdom. Where uncleanness is made clean, where the rejected get accepted, where those oppressed get set free, it's a reality, it's a reality readily available that Jesus invites us into living in that reality. But how do we live in that reality? He's in charge. He's king. And we yield our life to him as master. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord, is master. He's in charge, and we yield our whole lives to him. That's why some people will just simply reject that. I prefer to be my own Lord. It isn't just accepting something about what Jesus did for them, just like the cross and the blood. It's a whole life. That's why the Apostle Paul will later say in Romans chapter 5 and chapter 8 that we're saved by his life. Not just saved by his death, saved by his life. Because his life lived in that reality. And I want to live in that reality. How do I live in that reality? Jesus is in charge. He's Lord. That's the announcement. He's Lord and Christ. 
Jesus' last words in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says to his disciples, All authority, all of it, in heaven and earth has been given to me. All of it. So what you see in their day, what you see Caesar, him as Lord, it's a sham, it's a shadow. What we would see in presidents and prime ministers and governors, it's a shadow. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's, it's not as real. There's a reality to it, but it's not as real as the reality of the one who sits in the Oval Office of the universe. Living in that reality means that I now have a different filter to see this reality. This is why for centuries, Christians could willingly give their life to the Roman circus as martyrs. It's because they were tuned into a different reality. A reality that retaliation was not appropriate. That surrender and sacrifice was the way to life. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And what then is the commission? Verse 19. Because all authority has been given to Jesus, go. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Immerse them in Trinitarian community, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And then listen, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Why would we need that? Is it like, well, now you just better obey or otherwise? No. We have, to, we have to learn what he taught, not just for our intellectual growth, not just for our, quote, morality or the ethics of our life. No, it's because we have to learn how to live in that reality because it's not easy to the flesh. It's not tangible to flesh and blood. It's not observable by our five physical senses. We have to be tuned in to a deeper reality. And so we have to learn what he says because somehow we have to see the world different. And we can't do that without him. We can't do that without an inner transformation. Or as Jesus says in John 3, you can't even see the kingdom of God without being born again. And you can't enter into that kingdom unless being born of water and spirit. You can't, you can't live in that reality unless there's a transformation. Because you're not going to be able to see it and feel it with your five physical senses. And so being his disciple is this constant surrender to his lordship. It's a constant, consistent yielding to his teaching. That when he says something I don't agree with, I'm the one in the wrong. When, the, when what he does causes confusion, I'm the one confused, not him. Being his disciple means the whole of my life coming under his authority and being transformed by his leadership. To where the most natural thing to do with power is to leverage it to build others up. That's transformation. That the most natural thing, that when I encounter sickness and disease, that I can tune into a different reality and see someone healed because I, I can see the kingdom of God. 
Not just the manifestation of sin and death in someone's life. That's, that, that's why the gospel is important in getting it right. It's because if you just think it's some doctrine and theology, you just, I accept it, I not accept it, done. it doesn't bring transformation. And that's why I want to preach the gospel Jesus and the apostles preached. Because it changed the world. It transformed the world. Their doctrine came from that gospel. But the definitive gospel is that Jesus is in charge. And he calls us not just to, okay, no sarcasm. He calls us to give our life away. That's what the call is. And if you look at the rest of Peter's sermon, he was done when he said, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Done. And then the people go, okay, hang on. Well, then what do we do? And that's when Peter says, well, you got to die. Not die and go somewhere else. No, you, got, you need to be baptized. You need, you need to connect your life to his death. And you need to die. And you need to be raised to new life. And there, in, that, in that raised to new life, yeah, the forgiveness of sins. You become born again, transformed. Able to see a different reality and live in that reality. And that's why he says... Later, save yourselves from this wicked and perverse generation. You see, the salvation of the Lord is not just securing our fire insurance. Getting your ticket to a good afterlife. No, salvation is about living in a different reality. The kingdom of God with Jesus as king. And that's the gospel we're going to be committed to. That's the gospel we're going to preach and live and be disciples of. The disciples of King Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And there's not going to be a lot we might not understand. Might not be the most intellectually stimulating. But it's the gospel that will save the world. It's the gospel that will transform cities and regions. That's what I want to give my life to. Amen. Would you bow your heads? Father, we are so grateful for who you are and what you've done. And Jesus, we honor you as King, as Lord, and yield and submit our lives to you. I thank you for what you've done for us, for the life you lived. So by the power of the Spirit, open our eyes to see the reality of the kingdom of God. As your disciples, transform our sight to see people through the lens of the kingdom, not through the lens of the flesh. To see the world, not through the lens of the flesh, but through the lens of the kingdom of God. And to anyone who's far away, who's rejected this, or lived far, or never submitted their lives, Holy Spirit, May you draw their hearts. May you confirm the preaching of the word, the gospel, with real transformation, signs and wonders that follow. Because the reality of the kingdom of God is invading this reality. Because that's our prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
your righteousness, peace, and joy that's in the Holy Spirit. Come and invade this space. Come and invade our lives. And that your plans and purposes, your desires and pleasures be fulfilled in and through our lives as we yield and submit to you. And I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Man, that's some, that is a good word. I took so many notes. I mean, more than I normally would. I'm just blown away. That, and kingdom is not, it's not metaphorical. And we, because of the growing up in the United States, we resist the idea of a king and a kingdom and all that goes with that. And I mean, there's something in me that just cringes a little bit when we talk about that. But I don't cringe when I think about how, I mean, when you're raising your children, you don't think about that relationship as being cringy. Your kids may. (laughs) Your kids may think, oh, cringy. Let my parents make choices for me and do it. Except they're doing it out of love. And that's probably a better understanding about what that relationship is supposed to look like, especially for us, because the idea of a king and a Lord, we're resistant to that. But in order for kingdom to happen, there has to be that relationship that we have with God where we, that concept becomes real to us, not as a metaphor, a reality, because that's how transformation happens. It's my prayer for myself and us together that we grasp more what that kingdom means. We've studied the book of Matthew at, on Wednesday nights for the last few months, and um, that, that's just a recurring theme. The entire gospel, the message that Jesus brought to us, to us in his earthly ministry revolves around that. It's my prayer that that becomes more of a reality in our lives because that's how that transformation happens. I'm going to ask Ryan to come on in. Um, Speaking of transformation, um, man, three years ago, so many things happened. Uh, Three and a half years ago, when the um, pandemic happened, uh, people came from other places looking for freedom and looking for churches that believe the word and one of those families was Ryan and his and Angie and and their family cuz you came the summer of that 2020 uh, and uh, and then Ryan followed and I've seen their family just grow so much and um, Ryan is going to take a job um, in Kansas and so they're going to be kind of split between here and there but he leaves for that job this week and we just want to bless him um, so I'm going to ask him to come forward and Angie too and it, um, especially if you have a relationship I just want you to come and we're going to lay hands on him and give him a special blessing to to go up there and um he's been in school he's um he's an a and he's got his a and p license stuff now to, for aeronaut 
aeronautical. He's an aircraft mechanic. Um, airframe and power plant. Is that what that stands for? And um, so uh, let's just come lay hands on him and we're going to ask a blessing on him. Father, I just pray your blessing on Ryan right now and, and his family as an extension of that. That everything that you have done in him in these past couple of years that he'll never forget where it came from and that that the transformation you've brought about in his life in so many different ways that he even looks like a different man right now and I pray that a realization of the relationship that you have with him and all that's come from that these blessings that it will be an encouragement to him to consider that he's worthy of who you've made him and he's worthy to be in the place that you've placed him in the world and the job that you have for him and all the blessings that he's getting that he's worthy in every way because of that relationship with you as as your child everything that he has is what you want him to have and I pray that the enemy, that his ear would just be deaf to the enemy. Just like Jesus says that we don't hear. We don't hear the voice of the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But only we hear the voice of the good shepherd. And I pray that your blessings on him and his family and all that comes, especially in this next year when transitional things are happening, and that they'll be brought back here to this family to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you and all of y'all. Thank you for thank you for, for lifting him up, him up with me. And if you have anything that you'd like for us to pray for, I want to... As I was thinking about how what the good news is that the kingdom has come, it, see that was that you don't have to wait anymore. The waiting is over. The kingdom has come, and I started thinking about waiting and what it means. And one of the first things I thought of was when you're in a restaurant and you're waiting for your food, and now oh, it's finally here. It's that feeling. That's what we're supposed to have as far where the kingdom is concerned. The second thing I thought of is waiting for a baby. And, and the most recent experience we've had of that was um, the Pitkins waiting for their baby to come. And what a relief it was, not as much as it was for, for her. But because um, if, if you're a lady and you've been through that waiting for that baby to come, that is when it's finally here. It erases the, the pain and anything else. Um, the Bible talks a lot, uses that metaphor a lot about waiting and how just that, that those immediate minutes and hours before birth, um, the travail, the Bible talks about, about that, what all happens as that baby's being born. And then it's just like that. It's here. 
and the change that that is. Um, I want that to be an encouragement to you. There's no more waiting. We have to be reminded of that all the time. If you need anything, if you need us to pray for anything, I want you to seek me out and um, and be in prayer for others in this week. And on Wednesday nights, we have Bible study and a special prayer time, and we share those. We have a list that we that we pass around that we pray for people for throughout the week. And so if you want to be put on that list, you just let me know, all right? Let's pray. Father, bless us all as we go from here. And I don't say those words lightly, Lord. I ask... I ask your special blessing on us as we leave this place. That as an investment that that we all have made to be here this morning, that you'll bless that investment and you'd, you'd make a return on it. And not just so we'll get be richer or we'll have more stuff or anything like that, but so that we can bless others. That that we have a new understanding of what the economy of the kingdom is. That it, that as we get stuff, that we that we spread it out. That it be as as kings and priests, it's our duty to take what you give us and spread it out. That literally, in all the places we go, like Johnny Appleseed or something, at all the places that we go, we'll be spreading a little bit of you will be spreading a little bit of heaven in all the places that we go. And may, may we take that commission seriously to spread your word everywhere we go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.